evil has hold of me. And worse than that, I have hold of it. And the darkness of sin has offered me a kiss, and I said yes. Or in the words of Beyonce, I liked it, so I put a ring on it, or something like that. Thank you for the few laughs. at That amazing joke, by the way. And in this covenant of sin that I have made, I have found myself surrounded by darkness, swallowed in the depths, far from God and far from peace and joy. And as, as if the guilt and shame are not enough, you take on top of that the life that brings pain and suffering and heartbreak. You pile it all on together, and then what you find is now you're in the depths. And if you're going to be honest with yourself, you're going to find that you are just like me, right there in the depths. And there's two options that you have. You can keep your eyes closed to it all. And if you keep your eyes closed to it all, you're going to avoid a bit of pain in your life. But you're going to miss the light. So if you will open up your eyes and deal with the darkness that is around you and within you, it is those who are most aware of the darkness who are first to spot the light coming from the distance. So if you're bold enough to open your eyes, in the end, the light that searches you is a light of peace and joy and beauty and wonder. There's a song that says, wake me up when it's all over, when I'm wiser and I'm older. And what it's essentially saying is, just fast forward me through the pain, through the suffering, through the doubt, through the struggle, and let me just arrive complete. And the problem is, that's not the way that this works. Because the only way to be complete is while you are there in the darkness, in the guilt, and in the shame, you open your eyes and you discover the one who makes you complete. And you don't find him when you've arrived, you find him in the depths, and then he arrives with you. George MacDonald in his book called Princess and Curdie says that the one who knows the depths best understands the heights. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look into the darkness within us. We're going to look into the, into the darkness around us, but we're going to scratch and claw until we find the light that is offered to us. It is always through the valley that you find the mountain. You have to set sail through the sea to find the shore. And we're in this series called Playlist, The Road Home. And what we're seeing is God's people. There's, this is a set list of songs. Psalm 120 to 134, and it's a set list of songs that God's people would sing on a pilgrimage. They were traveling through the valleys up to the mountain, and their eyes were set to the city of God, Jerusalem, and then up to Mount Zion, the mount of God, where they worship God. But, but look at this, look. They meet God not just at the top of the mountain, but in the valley. And they meet God in very different ways at each place. So both places are important, don't miss that. And we're arriving today at the 11th song. And what has been happening, which is, it, it's, been, it's been a weird adjustment for me. What's, been, what's happening is the Psalms are looking at our enemies. 
the Psalms keep looking at the problems of the world around us and looking at the sin of the world around us. And finally, today, in this 11th song, we look at potentially the greatest enemy that we have, and that enemy is ourselves. And just to put this song or song in perspective, Psalm 130 was the favorite psalm of John Calvin, Martin Luther, St. Augustine. John Owen wrote a 320-page book on this one little tiny psalm. And John Wesley, in his famous line where he found his heart strangely warmed, it was in response to hearing a song that was written to Psalm 130, the psalm that we're in. So let that put this song in perspective. If you have no idea who those people are, just know that they are some of the most influential pastors in history. So here we go, Psalm 130. A song of ascents. Ascents means pilgrimage. Out of the depths I cry to you, O God, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there's forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So first point's the depths. So the question is, what are the depths? The depths are not something within you. The depths are something that you are in, that you cry out from. The depths are something that surround you. In Psalm 69, 15, this is going to help us understand what the depths are. It says, let not the flood sweep over me, or the deep swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. So the deep is the watery darkness of the spiritual death that you're in. It's to be surrounded by sin. It's to be encompassed by it. It's to be trapped in it. It's, it's, it's not letting you go. It's, to be in the depths is to have a sin that you love and hate at the same time. It's guilt surrounding you and shame eating away all peace and joy in your life. When you're in the deep, you have love for people in your life. The problem is that love keeps getting swallowed up by this watery darkness. It keeps getting swallowed up by the sin within you. And so you have this love that the waves keep on trapping and that love that you have for others, it never gets there. And they need it badly. But you're in the depths. In the deep, you feel like a nobody crying out from nowhere. And you feel like God is a million miles up in the heavens and you are at the bottom, the fringes of hell. And these psalms, I mean, they're real and they are raw. And what you have to understand is the person who is writing this psalm is a spiritual hero of the day. This is someone who's very mature in their faith, and they're talking about how vile their sin is. Is that healthy? Should you really be looking at the darkest parts of you and focusing in on them? Should you look at the darkness that's all around you and encompassing you? Isn't that going to make you a bit depressed? And the answer is probably... 
But you don't see, here's your options. You close your eyes to it all and then you miss the light. But if you will be bold enough is to open up your eyes there in the darkness and as you're surrounded by the darkness and see the darkness within you, it is those who are in the deepest darkness who are first able to spot the light that is coming. Grace is always more amazing the greater you understand your sin. Mercy is always more healing the greater you understand your depravity. And life is always more enjoyable the greater you understand the depths that you have been pulled out of. Jesus asks, who loves more? The one who has sinned greater and been forgiven or the one who has sinned less and been forgiven? The answer is the one who has the greater sin and has been forgiven loves most. And so that means the key to you being someone who loves fiercely and well is to know what you've been saved from, to know the darkness that has been within you and how you have been forgiven of that darkness and that sin and that shame. And in that forgiveness, you now love greater than you loved before. And once you look at the darkness, the first thing you do is you cry out in terror because it's scary, you're in the dark. So this is our second point, the cry. It says, from the depths, I cry to God. And the cry is for mercy. It's for help. It's for redemption. It's waking up and seeing how bad things really are opening your eyes, and the very first thing you do is you have to, in desperation, cry out because the terror is too much. And if you've not looked in your heart and it has not terrified you, then you're not looking long enough or you're not looking deep enough. The cry comes from a place of desperation because you're entrapped. And it says, O Lord, if you mark iniquities, or in other words, if you count our sin against us, Who could stand before you? And the answer is nobody. We're flattened. So what do you do? You cry out for grace and for mercy. And I don't know about you, but my sin is ever there. It's like ever before me. And as soon as I deal with one bit of sin, what I find out is there's a million layers underneath that are all causing me to have this sin that's up at the surface. So in this idea of self-forgiveness that the sages of our day are trying to get us to do, here's the problem with self-forgiveness, with you forgiving yourself. One, I don't think it works. And the reason it's not working is because you've got all this guilt and shame, and what you're trying to do is you're trying to like gate it in. You're trying to close the gate to it all. The problem is that like an army gathering, that guilt and shame are growing and growing and growing until the gate can't hold it back and then the gate bursts open and you find all this guilt and shame flooding into your life and it's too much for you and you don't know what to do with it. You haven't dealt with it as you have gone through life. You are just waiting until this moment and it might crush you. The second problem with self-forgiveness is that it's only God who forgives. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't forgive yourself, and that doesn't mean you shouldn't forgive others. What I mean by this is that the only shot that you have in truly forgiving yourself and truly forgiving others is to be enamored by the forgiveness that's been offered you in Christ. And when you taste it and you see it, then you begin forgiving yourself, and then you begin forgiving other people in your life. Some of you hate yourself. 
And it's because you can't forgive yourself. And you can't forgive yourself because you don't really think God has forgiven you. You, What you need is the declaration of God's forgiveness. You need to see the King of kings and the Lord of lords who has said you're forgiven. The God of the cosmos, the one you're actually sinning against, has said you are forgiven. And that, when that moment happens, then you can start forgiving yourself. And until then, you don't have a shot. So you ask God for mercy. And when you ask God for mercy, do you know what you're asking of Him? Like, do you understand Christianity? Because when you're asking God for mercy, you're asking Him, Christ, to take everything that you have done wrong and to carry it upon Himself on the cross. You're asking Him, I mean, He knows what you're feeling now because He's carrying your guilt and your shame and it's real to Him. And He feels the weight of it. And you're asking Him to carry it and you're asking Him to be punished and taken down in your place. And that could make you say, well, that doesn't seem fair. I don't think I can ask that of God, of Christ. And I say to that, you better, because this is your only chance. This is your only shot. And the other thing is, He wants to forgive you. He wants to do what He did for you on the cross. He is the God-man who pursues sinners. He loves sinners. He cherishes sinners. He seeks sinners out. He's looking for them all. He didn't come into this world to find the great people of this world. There were none. So he came here seeking out sinners, vile people, who will ask him for mercy. And he loves giving it. That's why he's here. So ask him for it. And here's the, here's the deal. Here's the problem. You can't see yourself there in the depths and say, well, let me claw my way out a little bit so I can at least poke my head up out of this pit that I am in so he doesn't think that I am so bad. And the problem with that is he's at the bottom of the pit already. And the only place you discover him is there at the bottom of the pit when you are so aware of your sin. Stop trying to clean yourself up. It's those who have seen the bottom that understand the heights because they discovered the one who was waiting there at the bottom for them. Now, oftentimes people come to church to clean up their life a little bit. They're like, oh, I'm going to prepare myself to meet God. So they come here, clean themselves up a bit, or try to, and I'm going to tell you that's not what the church is for. It will not do that. The church's primary job is to introduce you to the, to the Christ, to meet him. And there, when you meet him, you meet him there at the bottom, but then he doesn't leave you there at the bottom. He lifts you up. Don't make church a self-improvement progress process. That's not what this is. Don't try to better your life and come to church. We're talking about something much grander here. We're talking about meeting the God of the cosmos and then letting him do with you whatever he wants to. Now, the thing is, he will always take you there at the bottom and lift you up out of it. It might not look the way you want it to look, but he's always doing good work. You can't get out of the deep without him. And then once you cry out to him, well, you don't want to hear this, but then comes the waiting. And the waiting... And the waiting, our third point is the waiting. The Christian experience is to open up your eyes. To cry out to God in terror and then to wait for Him. And to feel like you're waiting forever and ever. 
it feels that way. It says you wait for him like watchmen wait through the night. The watchmen are waiting for the dawn to come, and they are absolutely exhausted, trying to do everything they can to stay awake. You're exhausted. You're waiting for joy. You're waiting for God to come and rescue you. You're waiting for some peace in your life. You're waiting for some new life to come. And you look around at the people in this room who are lifting their hands in worship, although a lot of you are introverts, so you're not doing it. You kind of want to, but you won't do it because people can see you. But you know that there's a joy in them, and you hate them for it. And there's a real joy in them, and you're so mad because you're saying, when is it going to be my turn? When is this mercy of God's presence that will fill me with joy going to come into my life? And you keep waiting. And you're exhausted, wondering when it's going to be your turn. I once heard a story about a pastor, Charles Spurgeon. And he talks about how he had these moments where he would go to God in prayer and the glory of God would so overwhelm him that he thought he was going to die. So in his prayer, he actually says to God, God, you're going to have to bring your present hand off of me because this is just too much for me. Now, I say to that, whatever, Charles Spurgeon, because I'm mad about it, because I want some of that, because it sounds amazing. And I've had moments where I've had sweet time with God where I used to take these prayer walks, but I'm in a time now of waiting. And I want you to know that is a normal Christian experience where you're waiting for God. You're remembering times where it was very sweet when you were with God. You feel with this mighty glory like Charles Spurgeon. You're lifted up to the heights. But life is not always that way. The Christian experience is not always that way. There's a lot of waiting. In fact, the Bible talks a lot about waiting because that's the typical experience that we have. Normal part of the Christian life. And, and I want you to also know that in this psalm, there is no resolution. There is a hope. So there is kind of like an answer. The answer is to hope. But the hope is not realized in our psalm. And there's a reason it's not realized. Because the hope that we fully experience that we, when we are fully realizing it is not here in this place. It is not here in this world yet. We're waiting for it. The whole premise of Christianity was we're still waiting for Christ to return. Or we're waiting to go up and meet Him in glory. It's just a lot of waiting. And the psalm is teaching you to how to hope. And it's teaching you how to look back in remembrance of what he has done and to trust in what he is doing and to trust in what he one day will do. And it's, this psalm is about this, looking forward into your future, seeing that it is good and continuing to hope that it will be good. I went to a speaking event a few weeks ago and while I was listening, there was a guy that was behind me, and he like leaned up on the chair behind me, and he kept bumping me. I'm like, what's he doing? So I turn around, and he's trying to get my attention, and, and he says, hey man, you ever looked into the future and saw it as good? Beeping awesome. He said, you ever done that before? He's like, he really wanted me to answer, so I was like, yeah man, it's called hope. He said, beep, yeah. And, and he really felt like he found something that very few people have found. And, and he might be right. 
although it's all over the Bible. In fact, it's a bit better than that because he's likely looking into his future and imagining something that's very earthly. And that's fine. But Christianity is saying, look into your future and imagine something otherworldly. Imagine something beyond this world. Imagine a home that's beyond this home. But don't just imagine it. Imagine it more and more. Take hold of it. And start finding yourself continuing to hope for it. And start imagining it to come and inhabit the present. Start imagining the kingdom of God coming on earth. Start imagining what that would look like now. And then you're going to find yourself acting in such a way where you're bringing heaven to earth. And keep hoping. And then as you keep hoping for this new day, because you're looking into the future, and you're seeing life with God who is life, and it's becoming meaningful and it's becoming exciting to you, here's what you do now. You keep hoping and then you, you take hold of that hope. And you don't let it go. And that's what faith is. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. So the art of faith is picturing what is to come. Like just learning it. So you just read the Bible all the time because as you're reading it, you're finding what you're hoping in. And you keep picturing it. And then what seemed to be a fool's hope starts to becoming a real hope. And then it starts to become faith. And so you start with hope. Hope for forgiveness. Hope for being relieved of guilt and shame. Hope that this present darkness will pass. Hope that this season is just a season and soon you won't have to wait anymore. And then you take hold of it and you don't let it go. And that's faith that's constantly maturing. And then you have to ask this question. How can you be so sure? How can you be someone who has strong faith? I, don't, I, th- I have a feeling that most people don't feel like they have strong faith. So how do you become somebody who is relentless in their belief and in their faith in God? You can look in the future and say, that's beeping awesome. There's a key word here in Hebrew. It's hesed. This is our fifth point. Christ cry in the depths. Hesed is the Hebrew word that is translated in our chapter as steadfast love. But the word means so much more than that. This word is about a covenantal promise that God is making to his people that he will deliver deliver plentiful redemption. Now, plentiful redemption, what is this? Well, if you're redeemed, it means that you're, you're stuck in something. You're in a prison. And you're in this prison, this pit of guilt and shame and darkness. And what he does is he rips open the gates and he puts you in another kind of prison. Only this is a prison of green, green pastures and still waters and blue skies. It's a prison of peace and wonder and beauty and joy and happiness. You will be a slave to something. Be a slave to the God who encapsulates you into something that you're made for, something beautiful, something wonderful. That is what plentiful redemption is. He doesn't free you so you can go roam off and be alone. He frees you to put you in something wonderful. And he's done it. And he's made a promise that he's going to do it. So you take Abraham, who is the father of faith. And you know what Abraham says to God? How is he the father of faith? You know what he says to God? God says, I'm going to bless you with this other world, Abraham. This nation, this people, this beautiful And Abraham says, yeah, but how do I know? God says, well, because I'm telling you. 
yeah, but how do I know? How do I know, God? How do I know? And God says, fine, stop. God says, do this. Find some animals and cut them in half. Sermon over. No, it's a joke. So he cuts these animals in half. This is, this is a strange thing to you, but it was actually how a covenant was made back then. Abraham knows exactly what's going on. God is entering into a promise with him. And it would normally be Abraham who would pass through these, these, uh, these animals that are cut in two, but God passes through. And it's as if God is saying, if I don't keep this promise to you, I'm going to die. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying, I'm going to die in order to keep this promise to you. God's made a promise to you that he's going to give you those green pastures, those still waters, that hope and that joy and that peace. He's going to put you in a world that you cannot escape, no matter how hard you try. A beautiful world, a wonderful world. And he's going to keep that promise no matter what. He's going to make sure of it. And he has done it, and he is doing it, and he one day will fully do it. And he's already done it because you know, or the Bible has told you, that you have cried out from the depths. And he who was in the heavens, a million miles apart from you, heard your cry in the depths. And he took off. He ripped a hole in the heavens and he came and he plunged down into the darkness of the sea, into the spiritual death that you are in. And he swam down and he found you there in a spiritual death. And he grabbed you and he pulled you up out of it all. But as he was in that, I mean, he's swimming around in sin and guilt and, he sh- and shame. He feels everything that you feel when you feel guilty, when you feel shame. He knows what it feels like. When you wear your sin upon yourself, you know that he was stripped naked on the cross and wore your sin. And then on that cross, he says, my God, my God, why, why have you forsaken me? And there it is. He's a million miles apart from his father. Because he came to get you. And when he rose up out of that watery grave, he placed you upon the shores of paradise. Now even, you've got your feet in. Your toes are in the sand of paradise a bit. And he's healing you. And he's telling you, it's okay. I know and I saw what you did and it's okay. I made a way. And not only that, I love you. And I'm not going anywhere. And now, because of what I've done, there's nothing you can do or not do that's going to change the way that God loves you. His love is constant. It's not changing. No matter how great you are or how small you are, how insignificant you think you are or how grand you think you are, it doesn't matter. He loves you still the same. And you can't change it. And you won't ever change it. Because he's made a promise to you, and he's not going to break that promise. And that means despite everything, you know everything's going to be okay. But not just okay. This is only the beginning of the joy and peace that are available to you. The darkness, the shame, the guilt, that's only like page one or two of your story. And then Christ shows up so soon. And the rest of your existence will be an existence of eternal joy and peace that only grows greater and greater as each page turns. That's what you've got waiting for you. But first, you've got to cry out in the depths. 
and find that where sin abounds, mercy abounds all the more. Let's pray. God, we want to humble ourselves before you and see where we are. See that we have made a covenant with sin and death. But you've come to break that bond by being broken yourself. Help us see it. Help us know, help us know it. And God, I know that there is, there is pain in this church and there is guilt and there is shame. And suffering and loss, heartbreak. But God, I also know that you have promised us joy and peace. Not something that's far off, but something that's here now in you. So help us learn how to find that peace and joy in a world that is surrounded by darkness and sin. And help us be people who know that you are people who pursue, you are a person who pursues us sinners. You want us, and you love us, you cherish us, and you want to so badly forgive us, and you have. We thank you for this, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.